Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. There are, of course, a lot of ways to guide that inquiry, evolutionary, historical, psychological dimensions to understanding what is unique and precious about the moment that we live in. And for me, all of these streams come together at the investigation of human technology coevolution and the psychological and social consequences of our changing relationship to our communications media. Specifically, what does it mean to live in a glass house? The modern construction of the private individual, as you'll hear in this fabulous conversation with cybersecurity specialist Dylan Curran, is a relatively recent innovation. And for the 300,000 years or so that we've been anatomically modern human beings, most of the time we've lived in extremely intimate, transparent social groups where the identity of the individual is subsumed within the tribal identity. So as hyperconnectivity through electronic technology reshapes the landscape of identity and community in this age, it should come as no surprise that it's sending us down some very familiar gullies and into some ancient future arroyos well carved already by thousands upon thousands of years of human habit and biology. Knowing that, though, doesn't necessarily make the transition into the end of privacy as we know it any easier. And anyone who's listening to this show around the time of its recording, not by digging it out of some distant future hard drive archaeological dig, if you're listening, you almost certainly have a direct and very uncomfortable experience with how much information it is that we're sharing online, which usually these days comes in the form of some kind of awful surprise when we realize that our artificially intelligent assistants know us far better than we intentionally allowed them to. You might say that this is the age of the Faustian binding end-user agreement by which each of us is given vast almost godlike powers in exchange for offering everything that we are into the maw of entropy and its avatars the five great data companies that possess the closest thing that we have these days to a signature in blood namely your emails your fitbit data everywhere you've been on google maps since you started using it everything you like Everything you buy, everyone you hang out with, all the comments that you type and then think that you've deleted, all of your passwords, all of your conversations, all of your medical data. We're living in what I called in 2013 the glass age, an age defined not only by the transparency of our lives to the digital panopticon, but also our total material dependence on the substance of glass for the silicon chips, the fiber optic cables, and the screens that have become the dominant abode for our fragmented attentions. And yet, in this decay of the boundaries and membranes of identity and propriety that we once were taught to believe and accept as 
real objective phenomena, a new interdependent, collaborative, fluid, and agile selfhood is emerging. And I have a lot of hope for this next thing, as awkward and turbulent as the transition into it might be. So I'm going to ring out this episode with a song I wrote about all of this called Transparent, the refrain of which is, we would be scared if we weren't sharing it. Now that is not a low-key reminder to share this show with your friends, although I do appreciate everybody who has been reviewing Future Fossils on iTunes. It's hugely helpful as well as all of the new Patreon supporters this week, Samuel Spencer, Jason Albert Hall, Scott Meyer. Thank you all so much for joining the Decentralized Intelligence Agency that is the Future Fossils listening community. Go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield if you would like to stick your face in the fire hose of psychedelic science fictional media that I produce, including early and exclusive episodes of this show, original music, coloring book pages, and more. And if you're the chatty type, I hope you'll join us in the Future Fossils Facebook discussion group where you can't possibly say anything they don't already know, so you might as well join us and enjoy a daily flow of interesting news and conversations there. But for now, thank you all so much for listening, and enjoy this very blunt and practical conversation with Dylan Curran about just how deep we're in it and the practical strategies for living a safe and hygienic but convenient and empowered life online. Dylan, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, I can't remember who it was that shared your Twitter thread, but obviously a lot of people have, including Edward Snowden, which is pretty dope. Um, just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. There. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it, it, big deal. it's important, though, and, and I'll post the, the link to the thread in the show notes because it's really helpful to see in one place uh, all of these things that... You know, I think people have sort of either suspected or found out through different news outlets, but to have it all in front of you in one sort of digestible, readable format is is really epic. So what are we talking about here? What is what is the drop in this? So I supposed to do a quick summary is one Saturday morning I was really hungover and I decided to for some for some whatever reason. I went on Twitter and I saw a Twitter thread, which is really, really similar to mine. Uh, but it was going through, say, you know the way Facebook stores your call records and your text messages. So those are external to Facebook, but they store them regardless. And this guy posted a Twitter thread, pretty much it was kind of like mine. I'm just going through that. And people's shock was absolutely insane. Like there were so people who had no clue at all that this was going on. So after seeing that, I was like, oh, you've no idea. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, you have no clue what's actually going on. So then I went, I literally went on and. Download my archives and I went through my Google Maps, my 
uh, my Gmail, my Google Drive, my Google Fit. So this stored like everything, all the locations I've been, all the searches I've made, all the websites I've visited, all the ads I've viewed or clicked on, all the images and files I've downloaded, the, all the workouts and yogas, etc. Just like virtually everything I've ever done online was in this, these archives. So I just broke it down into an essay and tried to show like, say on like an individual level, what they stored about me and not on a broad scale. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make in the tech industry when they talk about privacy, is they talk about it in a broad scale. So for instance, with like Cambridge Analytica, uh, people are constantly talking about the fact that they sold 89 million Facebook uh, worth of it, Facebook's worth of information. But that number is so big, you can't even process that. Like 89 million means nothing to you. You just kind of go like, eh, oh well. <laughs> like Equifax, what was that, two years ago? Yeah. That was like, I want to say like 20 million financial statements leaked, stuff like that. Uh, no one really cared because it's too big a number. But when you show on like an individual level how much they store about me, that makes you think about what they store on you. And I think that, that that's probably why it was so shocking. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's that's actually, you know, related to Edward Snowden. I was invited into the Google Glass Explorer program, which is in 2013, uh, the, that beta tester round, which is when I started thinking about this stuff all the time. Uh, and it was a, it was a funny kind of convergence of, moments historically because right as everyone starts waking up to the reality of of this sort of mass surveillance bulk data collection and you know we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna uh sweep everything and we'll pick it apart later we don't care if we can you know properly analyze it now or not it happened at the same time that i started experimentally wearing a a camera on a computer on my face in you know certain public spots as a you know a, a sort of an artistic thing but it became really clear that this device which is basically doing all of the same sensors and uh you know it has the same sort of surveillance potential as a phone but the fact that it's not in your pocket it's actually on your head and in you know it's in between you and someone else when you're having a conversation literally physically made it so much more uncomfortable for people and and it was it was hilarious because to me I was like you realize there's no difference here like all of you are voluntarily carrying around these extraordinarily sophisticated surveillance devices in your pocket all the time but as soon as somebody brings it up in polite conversation it's no longer polite conversation and so there's something beautiful about that that human piece of this which is yeah like making it human scale you know making it oh this is what they this is me. This is my data. This is the complete portrait and not this like, you know, Carl Sagan, billions and billions of stars kind of thing. So now that you know, and you know, you're a, you're a cybersecurity professional. Uh, now that you know what people are collecting about you, what have you done about that knowledge? Like how has it inspired a kind of <clears throat> new behaviors? Well, see, like if you're in the tech industry, you would know that this kind of stuff is going on all the time regardless. So like my behaviors have always kind of been very much the same, which is mostly just be careful online. So like uh, the best, like the best antivirus is common sense. That's normally what I'll say. And that the same thing applies when it comes to privacy, because the fact is like you can go to extraordinary extents to hide your identity online, but you make the web, you make the internet virtually unusable. So for instance, you can use uh, like a VPN with a proxy, which essentially is just masking your location. So that's just saying that instead of me being in Ireland, let's say I'll be in Amsterdam. 
but then the browsers like uh, Mozilla and Chrome, etc., they came out with the new technology called WebRTC, which is live communication between the website and your computer, <clears throat> which means that they can get past the VPN and proxy and detect where you are regardless. So even if you use a VPN and a proxy, they still know where you are. And then even then, like if you're still using the same device, that device will have a unique ID. So even if it says you're not in Amsterdam, they'll know that that device is normally in my house in Ireland. Right. So that's how, like, there's there's really no way to hide, like, who you are. And then in terms of, like, what's online, uh, you can go to, like, Google and Facebook and turn off the privacy settings. So you can stop their data collection entirely. But, like, <clears throat> there's not really... They're going to have to collect something. Like, for you to use those services, they have to collect something. So, so for instance, like, if you're using Google Maps, like, you need to give your location. Like, there's no way, like, how, how well, like, they can't, they literally, they can't figure, they, they, to be fair to them, like, they cannot figure out the distance between you and wherever you're going without your location, and they're going to log that location. And then even after all that, you know, if you don't use any of the internet services, like Google and Facebook and stuff like that, your internet service provider is going to be collecting information about what you're doing anyway. So, like, there's not really a whole lot you can do in terms of stuff. Just, like, just all you have to do is be careful about what you do put online. That's it. Like, if, if there's nothing, like, liable or suspicious online, then you have nothing to really worry about in terms of that. But if you do value privacy, like, the best you can do is just find alternatives, like DuckDuckGo, for instance. You can use DuckDuckGo instead of Google, like, that'll stop collecting search history. Um, I'm working with a company called Presearch. They're, like, a blockchain alternative to Google. So they'll be, like, collecting information, but it'll be anonymous. Hmm. So they'll get the same benefits of Google, but you won't have to give you don't have to have that information tied to your personal identity anymore so there's stuff like that out there you just have to go look for it but in general i do think if you're going to use the internet you're going to be tracked somewhere just like if you walk on the street you're going to be caught by a cctv camera there's not really much you can do about it so there are there are two things coming up for me listening to you talk about this and one of them i would i just want to put a pin in for later which is the issue of the, the cultural reaction around this stuff and our idea of privacy and how you know, people with sort of different sets of cultural expectations are going to react to this differently. And some people don't even, some people don't care that they're living in a glass house to put it, you know, one way. Um, but like, let's put that aside for a minute because you mentioned that you are working on a, a uh, sort of secure and anonymous blockchain based search project. And this may be a, a bit too technical. I don't know of a question, but I'm curious you know how that's actually implemented because <clears throat> I know that a lot of the hype surrounding the anonymity of Bitcoin in particular is sort of overblown and that entities like the IRS are using you know complicated network analysis tools like uh, you know chain chain analysis to identify the players on the Bitcoin blockchain even though they're they're pseudonymous yeah, yeah. Right, right. That that that's that, that's the difference between anonymous and pseudonymous, and like because there's no way to be truly anonymous on the internet. You're gonna be there's gonna be something leading back to you. So pseudonymous is just saying that it makes it much, 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 much more harder. So like for instance, like if I'm say if say like we'll just use Bitcoin blockchain for an example, and if I send a Bitcoin transaction to you, and then we both have our public addresses uh, viewable, so that that's recorded in the blockchain. But the di- the difference is is that they can just figure out the what they'd have to tie that public address to my identity some way through my computer. And the only way that the IRS manages to figure out these kind of things is because they get the biggest transactions. So they take these huge, like 4,000, 5,000 Bitcoins. And there's only a couple of people who are able to do that. And then they'll just use that information to figure out who did it. So in terms of like smaller transactions, maybe in like the, you know, like 0.25 to 0.5 
kind of Bitcoin realm, where it's, you know, like a couple of thousand dollars, it's virtually impossible and it would take them years to figure out who you are, unless they get access to your computer and wallet and then they get your public key and then they know that that transaction was you. And even then, they have no idea that you are you and that I sent that to you. So they have no idea, like, why or why I gave the money. So it's not like if I sent, you know, like if I sent $20 to Amazon for a product, they know what I bought. But if I send 20 Bitcoin to you, they have no clue what I did, why I did it or that's you at all. Like, so there is that that is like an important distinction, but mm-hmm. it's re- it's relatively anonymous. Like, it's very difficult to detect who you are. So, I mean, that and I guess that sort of fades into the other question, which is, are we basically operating under a hopelessly obsolete, naive understanding of this sort of division between public and private? Like, did these things ever even really exist in the first place? You know, because this, in some sense, is just the latest iteration of, you know, a a kind of cat and mouse game of sense perce- evolving new ways of, like, detecting things in spite of the fact that they're camouflaged you know that's been going on for hundreds of millions of years like do you do you think that we're just um in conversation about these things that we're just being over simplistic and naive here yeah well what i mostly think with this kind of conversation is that um i do not try to encourage people too much to be to try and oops, sorry i do not try to encourage people too much to try and remain anonymous online because i don't really see the point because realistically like you're never going to be able to truly do it and then the extent you're going to go to to hide your identity is virtually impossible and then you can't really use the internet so you cannot use facebook without giving your identity like you can like there's simply no way so it's, so it's like if you're anonymous locking into your facebook like that's you know that's kind of that's a clue uh, so I normally try to what I normally try to argue on the basis of is that we need to kind of change how society w- wants to work, and it's that we want to not use these kind of services and give our identities that because we can use the similar similar enough services without compromising our identity and privacy. So like it's very much it's more of a, like an ethical and moral situation where I try to tell people like no look it's I'm not even trying to encourage people to use DuckDuckGo instead of Google and that kind of stuff. I'm like like what do we think is right, and then innovation will solve that issue. Like if we all, if we want to use those kind of services, innovation will rise up and fix it. We don't have to strictly think of the solution now. So, so it sounds like you are suggesting that we may continue wanting to use these sort of high bandwidth decadent sharing technologies for certain things. I mean, obviously there are certain things that are impossible without them, but that maybe we've gotten sort of zealous in our... So like an ideological devotion to this kind of transparency. I mean, ultimately, it seems like it, it all comes down to power. Like I heard John Perry Barlow speak a, a couple of years ago, and he talked about, he's like, I don't mind living transparently. I just want to know who's looking. Like, I want to know who's watching me, who has access to my data. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, the, the fact of my living in public is not a, an issue of concern because I've grown up on a, you know, in a small Wyoming ranch town where everybody knew everybody else's business but it was that it was that what kevin kelly and other folks have called covalence you know which is like horizontal it's a it's like a neighborhood watch you know people are watching each other laterally rather than surveillance where it's you know the the eye on the pyramid kind of thing so do you think that this i mean is is ultimately this just is it's not so much a matter of data transparency as it is a matter of power inequality 
Yeah, kind of. I mean, like, because the centralization of power in terms of data collection is very much centered around, like, the you know, like the big four, which would be like Facebook, sorry, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and mm, probably Instagram. So, like, those four are like collecting the most, maybe LinkedIn. So, those five are collecting the most information about people, and they're hoarding that information like crazy. And it's, I mean they're not technically doing anything malicious or nefarious with it we don't know that like i can't i can't say for certain that facebook or google are actually doing anything bad with the data like what's much 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 more likely is that they're just using it to make money so they're just using it to target advertising which isn't too nefarious you know that's how they have to make money so and but then we also go into stuff where you know the nsa prism program yeah but talk to people about that a little please yeah, so the prison program was just where the NSA basically worked with a lot of the big tech companies to install backdoors into their software and services so that the NSA could virtually could access all the company's information virtually at any time without having to go through the hassle of a subpoena or through a court or to actually ask the companies for the data. So that means that the NSA, so like while the companies might be like very responsible with their handling of the information, you do know for a fact that a government has access to it. And then we also don't know what companies like, or not companies, like countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, India are doing with that information. Because I know like in Iran, for instance, do you remember maybe things about four or five months ago when there was a virtual civil war? So when that happened, uh, Iran shut down the internet access. And normally the way you get it, they shut down internet access for people living in Iran and monitored any traffic going out. And normally how you get around that is you use a VPN to encrypt your traffic so and also mask your location so that Iran couldn't monitor their internet traffic. But then <laughs> but then um, Iran actually put in new advanced software to detect when someone's using a VPN, and then, which is just basically because um, when you use a VPN, all of your traffic's encrypted, so everything's hidden. But that's really obvious when you're using a VPN. So they just literally found out people using VPNs and then killed them or threw them in jail. So like there's very little ways around these kind of things. But that just shows what, you know, what fallout there can be from this kind of monetization, this kind of data monetization. Mm. How do we get from here to there? Like, how do you see the global IT and like cybersecurity communities that are concerned about keeping the best of the digital revolution and curtailing the worst of this sort of data power inequity. What, what kind of steps? I mean, like you mentioned, you know, this particular blockchain search project. What else out there do you see as, as sort of like vectors or strategies in, you know, moving towards a, a more desirable outcome here? Uh, well, like I said before, like it's probably just going to be more future innovation. I think it's going to solve the issue, but it very much has to be a desire that people want. Because, you know, like it, uh, any sort of entrepreneurism that rises to meet this kind of demand is only going to be there if the demand is there. So at the moment, it's a very small minority of people who are actually willing to maybe go out of their way to take care of their privacy. It's very much like uh, taking care of your weight. I mean, like no matter how much we tell people that they're going to get fat and die of a heart attack if they keep eating, you know, loads of burgers. They're going to keep doing it. Like the vast majority of people are going to keep doing it. But there's always going to be that small subsection of people who go to the gym or, you know, to actually take care of their privacy. So really, like, it's you have to make people want to do things. Because if you just keep, like, alarming them and stuff like that, that's not really going to do anything. Like, you have to offer them a service that's as good as the rival services or food, say, that's as tasty as the bad food. But and also has to be just as quick to get and stuff like that. That's the only way that you're ever going to work it out so like uh, like i'm actually i'm working on a startup at the moment that will um it'll basically catalog all the information 
on the internet that's uh, related to you. So it gives you like your name, your location, uh, your date of birth, and then all of your social media handles to figure out everywhere you appear on the internet. And then it's going to actually email and uh, contact all these companies and websites that you appear on and ask them to take down the information. But the sad thing is this only applies to EU citizens because of GDPR. So for GDPR, like if, uh, if, you, if you ask a company or if an agent on your behalf asks a company to remove your information, they have to legally do it. So, but that doesn't work in the US because the US isn't taking part in G- GDPR. And, neither are, and the American companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter aren't putting in GDPR for US citizens, only EU citizens. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Charles Strauss and Cory Doctorow's novel Rapture of the Nerds, where they talk about how in a hundred years, parents will will scare their little children to sleep with horror stories of what Facebook did with everyone's data. You know, like you yeah. think about these, uh, like films like uh, Ex Machina, where your digital simulacrum is used to create. I mean, this is the Cambridge Analytica, like to the extent, you know, the ultimate sort of extension. It's, you know, beyond just targeted posts and into machines, you know, lovers or or just like smart homes that know how to manipulate our cognitive biases and personal preferences. And so we lose in this process. I think this is this is sort of, you know, what I ever since the Cambridge Analytica scandal was made public this has been the the sort of looming specter on the horizon, which is that to the extent that people's opinions can be swayed in this way, we've broken apart the coherent cultural narrative that enables and empowers an informed citizenry to participate in democracy. And that basically right now what we have is a political system of social engineering and programmatic control through what is essentially subliminal messaging and and like you and like ux like sort of black magic ux and so we're at a point now where it's like we're 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 cusping back into an age where the environment is the like our actual homes are the and our, our the the tools that we surround ourselves with in the day are determining our political behaviors, and that that's like unacceptable, right? Like on some level, like we've got to be able to get more people literate to the way that these media are are used in order to uh, manipulate public opinion and and like mass behavior and to me it's not at all clear except through a really articulate twitter feed shared by a a world famous cyber revolutionary how we do that like how how else can we possibly make this i mean you already compared it to getting people to take care of their waste is it the same kind of issue i mean ultimately is it the same kind of issue with the same kind of psychology is there just no way to get people to take care of this before it's catastrophic uh well i like to be optimistic and say yes but like the <laughs> the realist the realist side of me is kind of like nah i mean like say like my twitter thread might have gotten i got in the end 200 million views that's 200 million unique views so we'll say 
how many of them might have really read it. We'll say like 10%. So say 20 million of those people really read the thread. And then if we're going to take the portion of those people who actually acted on it, who actually went and changed how they behaved or did the privacy settings, you're probably looking at about 1% to 2%. So you're looking at 200 to 400,000. So for a Twitter thread that got 200 million views for only 200 to 400,000 people to change something, that's nothing. Like in the grand scale of things. And in... I don't think people are really going to make the effort to change things. That's why, like, that's why I always say, like, we need to offer something. We need to offer something that's as good, if not better, than Google. Like, for instance, with Presearch, um, they give you something called Presearch tokens. So you basically, you get a little bit of money every time you search. So that's offering people that that'll make them want to use the service as long as it's good as Google. So mm. it needs to it needs to be as good as Google and also have an extra incentivization. And that's the only real way that we're going to change things is that we have to actually offer things that are as good because like it, it's hard work. Like if you want to actually go off and not use Google or Facebook, that's tough. But that's genuinely tough. And if you want to remain anonymous online, you have to you have to pay extra money and make the Internet worse for you to use and more inconvenient for you to do it. So like, it's like going to the gym. Like it's just, it's it's hard. It's worth it, but it's hard. So people just aren't going to do it on a broad scale. And people don't do it on a general scale. They're not, then it's, it doesn't matter. Mm. Like everyone has to do it together. Otherwise, it doesn't make a difference. Going to the gym. Going to the gym is a really interesting comparison, right? Because exercise is something that everybody used to get. Yeah. Just living. You know, you're, you're running down a buffalo or whatever. You know, we, and we were, the, we were originally a species of runners. You know, our whole body is, is designed for this endurance running. Everybody can run a marathon. Grandma can run a marathon. You know, it, it might take her a while, but the body is set up for this. It's not set up necessarily for sprinting, but you know, the more that we removed the incentive for physical exercise and replaced it with the incentive for desk work, then suddenly now like, you know, we're paying to go to the gym. It's the, it really is the exact same thing. So this whole bit about the incentive structure and actually, I feel like, you know, your answer to my question of how do we deal with the threat of media being used for malevolent political persuasion is we use it for benevolent political persuasion. We use it basically to trick people into doing the right thing for themselves by paying them. I don't know. Mm, uh, kind of. Uh, so if I was to go into, say, like the more political manipulation... Mm-hmm. say um actually i was talking about this on twitter before when uh during the, the mark zuckerberg trial and uh, ted cruz was um com- whatever you think about ted cruz a conservative that, that has nothing to do with it uh, it's just that whatever ted cruz saying to mark zuckerberg that he was censoring that facebook was censoring conservatives and that's a full-blown fact like that's been proven and, that, and it's obvious because you know like facebook and silicon valley and silicon valley is one of the most left-leaning places in america or if even the world so and he he admitted that he's like yeah yeah look that what do you expect kind of thing it's like of course but people don't care because it's conservatives but they don't realize that like they're having their sphere their sphere of like influence being really narrowed the the reason america's political system works to some degree is because you have two extreme sides and then most people go to the middle so they get they meet in the middle they they bang off each other constantly and then it creates a middle a middle sphere so the the government system is not changing too much all the time it's very stable like the, for instance in the dollar is one of the most, it's one of the most stable currencies in the world to the stage that it's the world currency and that's because America's political system is extremely grounded and it does not move because it's just two sides constantly crashing and nothing gets done. But that's good. Like you want something to be stable. You need a very stable, very stable foundation for things to grow. 
And what happens online when you narrow people's fears of influence, they start going in the other direction. And when they start going in their direction, they just keep going. And they have no other actual view to, to bang off, so they just keep going. And then if you're on Twitter, for instance, you narrow your social sphere even more to people you only agree with. So now we have social media where people only follow people they agree with. Then they have places like Facebook, which is a public platform where they don't see any other points of view. And if they do see other points of view, there's probably lots of abuse, which is also agreeing with you. Because Facebook's going to lean towards showing you comments that you're going to agree with and, more, and you're more likely to like. So, and in terms of that kind of stuff, like I do, I'm kind of torn between legislation and then people just opting to use something else because it's hard. Like it's hard to actually keep free speech going online. It's really difficult. Like where do you draw the line? You know, that kind of like, no one knows where to draw the line, which is where I'm normally like, <clears throat> you keep things just total freedom. Like usually people post whatever they want, unless it's something illegal, you leave them post whatever they want. You do not take down anything that's an opinion, no matter what it says. It doesn't matter how racist or anything like it is. If it's if it's in America and it's freedom of speech, it gets put up. As long as you're not inciting violence. That's the Fifth Amendment, isn't it? Or the, sorry, the Fifth Amendment? First Amendment? First. First, First Amendment, sorry. Is that free speech? So you basically, as long as it's not inciting violence, you're good. And that's the way it should be. But now, like, <clears throat> I don't even know how to monitor it because Facebook's a private company and they're allowed to do whatever they want on their platform. So I, like, I don't know how to change that. Like, whether it's through legislation or through people just refusing to use the service, uh, I honestly have no idea. So, I mean, do you think that we could design systems, like you're talking about designing a search that pays for search. Do you think that we could design systems that incentivize people to cross the political aisle and engage? Oh, that, in- that, that, that already exists, Reddit. Like Reddit already encourages you to cross the political aisle. It's unfortunate, though, that it's gone very left-leaning as well. So now it's not down the middle. I say, for instance, on Reddit um, or politics, like that's that's very known for censoring conservatives as well. <clears throat> I'm not even trying to defend either viewpoint. I don't care. Um, but like it's bad when one viewpoint gets censored. But Reddit does encourage you to go to subreddits of people who agree with you or disagree with you. And you might like there's a there's a subreddit like um, change my mind for instance, where it's like you basically uh-huh. go post something, people try and change your mind, and then you get upvotes, etc. So that is encouraging people to have a more thorough debate. But again, that can get into echo spheres where you only go on subreddits of people you agree with. Uh, so like again, like it's, it's on both sides. Like Companies should try to maintain an effort to keep free speech, but people should also search for other viewpoints. Like You shouldn't just watch Fox News, and you shouldn't just watch CNN. You should watch both and then meet in the middle. That's how your viewpoint should always go. So you watch both extremes, and then the truth is probably directly in the middle. Mm. Yeah, it seems like the Reddit example, the, the prove me wrong, or change my mind, rather, change my mind. <laughs> That's a cultural phenomenon that's taken up because like a, on a grassroots level, people re- realize the need for this. It doesn't seem like it's baked into the platform, really. I wonder what it would look like to have a platform that rewards cultural synthesis in this way, that rewards, you know, like I, th- I think about like the, uh, the end of apartheid in South Africa and how this movement of discussion and and forgiveness and cultural healing occurred and i wonder what would catalyze something like that in the united states which is so polarized and so centrifugal now that it seems like we need a centripetal structure to keep it together at all or we're at risk of you know tearing down the middle uh what do you what do you mean by that like a an What's the apartheid America? Like, what's the, what's the comparison? I mean, in some sense, it's a, it's a coasts to center 
kind of issue, liberal coast oh, conservative sorry, core. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in another sense, it's the diminishing sort of middle class creating filter bubbles of the plutocrats and then everyone else, you know, and I was actually really disturbed on some level as hopeful as Occupy Wall Street was to see people become aware of the financial situation. It was also disturbing. The response was to continue to pose the conversation as us versus them. Is 99% versus 1%. Because what you're doing is, is you're, you're gathering, uh, you know, popular movement that admits it actually lacks the resources that the other side has to solve this problem and pits them, pits your cultural identity against those people. <clears throat> so what is it going to take to get everyone to recognize a sort of deeper solidarity and encourage those uh, aisle crossing conversations. I mean, the only thing I can really think of that might work, it seems like it's sort of working in Europe is climate change. But then again, if the, rea if the narrative is broken and you can't even get everybody to agree that climate change is happening, then you know, you're kind of up shit Creek. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm just asking you, do you think that this is even a design problem? I think it's a big kind of um, one of the biggest things, like the, the fake news issue, which is that people have just disregarded facts entirely. Like they don't care about that. Like if a fact works in their favor, it's true. It doesn't matter if the fact is true or not. If it works in their favor, now it's true. Like even with like climate change and stuff like that, like a lot of the times people don't even disagree with the fact that climate change is occurring. They're just disagreeing on whether it's technically bad for the earth because there's no evidence. Because <clears throat> like I've looked at the evidence myself and I used to think very much so. And this might be a bit of a tangent, but I used to always think that climate change is obviously true. Like I've read, like Bill Nye said it. But then when you actually look into the information and you look into the studies, the Earth goes through global heating and cooling periods roughly every 20,000 years. And there was an ice age 20,000 years ago. And now the, the Earth is probably just heating itself. Now, is it being accelerated by humans? Probably. But is there anything we can... Like, are we really going to uproot the entire Earth's techno technological and financial economy? for the sake of maybe reducing our output to like by to maybe like minus one or minus two degrees which isn't gonna even have a broad effect because the earth naturally globally heats anyway and we'd have to destroy all the progress we've made over the last 150 years <clears throat> so unless people are willing to do that unless they're willing to give up all of the nice cushy things they have in their life then nothing's going to happen because of it but that doesn't even really matter what i'm saying is that like you do need to look into studies and facts yourself so in terms of like it being by design i think it's more an individual level people need to very much actually start doing their own research and stuff like that like say for instance like 100 years ago you had to read a newspaper to find out any facts and when you went in to read newspapers people i think tend to think more for themselves i think they had much more they had much more discussions with their friends and their family and stuff like that which would have opened their mind a bit more but nowadays it's very much like you see you see something on cnn and then you share it on twitter and then everyone who agrees with you on twitter replies to you and if someone disagrees with you you block them so like it's you know there's actual there's no open discussion and then people just hate the other sides constantly on every side they are in nearly every single country the only play this does not seem to happen in the eu that much like in ireland for instance there is none of this political uh, rampage that's going on in the us like there's no left versus right there's pretty much you know we we very much argue on the basis of policies like for instance there's like uh, like there's the repeal the eighth right now which is the eighth amendment the eighth amendment to the irish constitution for ab about abortion so people want to repeal you know they want to repeal it to allow abortion in ireland but there's no left versus right it's who agrees with that policy and who d disagrees with it and that's it there's no actual there's no like no i'm liberal 
like you're wrong, you're conservative. There's none of that. It's just all on policies. And I, for some reason, that's just not happening in the US. Uh, it does. I don't even know what you would do to fix that issue. That's That really comes down to the individual. I don't know how much that has to do with any public platforms. Mm, you, you're making a point about voting by policy rather than voting by political affiliation kind of strikes to the heart of this this other issue that <coughs> seems to emerge from the way that the filter bubble and the you know social profiling through bulk data collection created or it maybe not created but at least participated in the emergence of identity politics in the modern world and like specifically this this notion of intersectional identity I mean, in some sense, these are ideas that emerged out of the, you know, PR and like propaganda interface with capitalism in the 20th century, like the desire, the, you know, the documentary film Century of the Self talking about moving from selling a product to selling a lifestyle and, and, yeah. and oh, yeah, identity that, yeah. as a consumer, right? Yeah. And so we've all been spoon-fed this stuff for our entire lives, you and I, and probably most people listening. And it seems like, like that is a huge piece of this in some way. That like it's the desire to understand the human being as an aggregate of data points. It's dissolving our coherent, identity as a you know this liberal modern citizen this cohesive person into just like a constellation of programs and preferences and that we're that the the consequences of that that are uh social media that align us along these cultural fault lines so i don't know i don't know if it's even a question i can like tie a belt around but it's like <laughs> it's like can you, can you know do it. you can do it yeah but it can, is there it. basically does it require an entirely new socioeconomic paradigm with a different notion of identity like in how how is it different in ireland like what do you think are the cultural factors that encourage this policy-based political engagement even in a world where you're dealing with the same sort of technological challenges that we are in the States? Uh, well, it would have mostly gone into the fact that America has a two-party system, so you, only, you really only have two aisles to go down. Uh, well, it doesn't technically have a two-party system, but it really is. Uh, while yeah. Ireland has a, multi, has a multi-party system, so we have, you know, like, we have like six or seven competing. So, like, you can't really align behind any sort of, like, single party that much because i don't I, I don't actually really know why it's so different like i know like so for instance in the states this kind of left right divide really happened in like the 60s and 70s when uh, it was very much uh, say when like the hippies came around that's when like hippies came and they were tolerant and it's peace and then they were coming out against the vietnam war and that really split people straight down the middle that was like you're either pro-war or anti-war if you're anti-war you're a hippie if you're pro-war you're a hard-working american and like that's the kind of way it went and from there it just kept escalating then it was those kind of people raising their children and and then it went to millennials and now it's gone from this stage where you're very much encouraged to be as tolerant and if you sorry if you don't agree with something if you don't agree with someone saying like who they are or what they are or what they want to, or like what race they are or what sexuality they are or what gender they are then you're not being tolerant enough uh, so like it but then now people have like an innate desire to be people have always had an innate desire to be a part of groups but that innate desire was counteracted by individualism you know which came about in the last like 
200 years roughly and we've already we've proven very much that individual individualism works and capitalism works they both work together and that's kind of gave a reason to one of the greatest basically empires in the world which would be the united states but now we're going back to a stage where it's all about like group identity or identity politics where we all feel the need to be as part of a group and we want to put ourselves into as say like as many groups as we can as we kind of possibly can which is why you see people coming out and they want to have like the, this random gender or they want to kind of like have uh, this diverse sexuality and kind of stuff like that because it puts them into this big lgbtq plus uh, society group where they're all bonded together and they always fight together and they're always they're a big clan and then the rest of the people who disagree with them they're the enemy and that's like so we do really need to go back to the individualism where you're a person you're not a group you know, like where you have your own personality and you have your own like self-identity and like who you are and you don't have to be a part of a group. You can just be who you are. You identify, you, you work off your personality and like your work ethic and like your value as a human being and not just, well, I'm gay you know, like or like I'm trans, whatever, I don't know, X, Y. Like, what do they have? Like, they have that um, Z, Zer, they, you know, the gender pronouns. What is it? Oh yeah, Z and Zer, and yeah, V and Z Ver, and all that stuff. And, yeah, just, Greg Greg Egan talked about those in his science fiction novel Distress. You know, sort of suggested a a seven gender system by twenty fifty, which I thought was sounds kind of like it might actually balance out the war of the sexes in the same way that seven political parties in Ireland <laughs> sort of handles the the cover. Yeah, one like, gender you, for every party. Yeah, who are you gonna? You sort of you lose the political charge. You know, yeah, the, the polarity. Xerxes vote for conservative for Xerxes vote for conservative that's how it goes over here like that's the way we go um yeah no it's 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 insanity like I know there's 89 genders I know I think now last track the new record I see yeah, 89 you know you just make that up and add it but that's just that stuff's incredible to me I find that so strange like that's like the problems that young people are trying to solve nowadays you know like if it was 40 years ago like back in like the 70s and 80s the youth, the young population was trying to stop wars. <laughs> they were trying to stop wars around the world. And now we're deciding on like 89 different genders. Like there's no, and that doesn't help people. Like that doesn't benefit the global population in, in any way. Do you think like a starving kid in Africa or a war-torn civilian in Syria gives a shit about what gender people are? Like, no, like that's not a problem the youth should be solving. I thought we were the really tolerant, world-changing people, but we're not. <laughs> like not, not now. This generation is just not doing that. <laughs> Well, I mean, in defense of a yes and the more the merrier kind of theory of gender, as opposed to like, we need to find the objective number and be like, we all need to agree that there are 87. No, there are 88. You know, this idea of shit, why not throw another ornament on that tree is, I think, trending toward uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about hyper-collectivization leading to hyper-specialization. And it seems like we're getting more and more differentiated as individuals as we become more and more integrated as a global civilization. So you get these people like, I know so many people whose job descriptions, myself included, I'm like, what, and what do you do exactly? Like you came up with a, your own name for your job because y your job is sort of this pattern of activity that's unique to you you know and oh, yeah, so I, to I totally made up my job title like i literally yeah. I, I was bored they asked i was going on fox and they're like so what's your job title and i was like uh 
privacy consultant? <laughs> and they were like, okay, I'll do. So yeah, I mean, in a sense, it seems like maybe there's a little hope at the end of this, like a light at the end of the tunnel. If we think that basically it just continues to fragment to the degree that everyone is their own political party, like everyone is their own demographic, everybody is their own religion, you know, and it just, at that point, we can encounter one another as sovereigns rather than citizens, you know, and then then it's a whole different conversation because everyone is speaking peer to peer and like probably literally in that case, because I don't, I don't really know how that kind of a, a culture can exist without a techno-economic base in which people own their own data. So Okay. You tried you tried to tie it in. <laughs> you tried to twist that in. Well no, I mean and, it's it's a real one. It's yeah. you know, no, this no, whole blockchain thing is a fascinating sort of it doesn't seem like a coincidence that all of this conversation about bulk data collection and, you know, digital feudalism and people working on is indentured servants on the Facebook farm are you know, it's intimately connected with the desire to create alternatives that reward people for their participation and allow them agent-centric data ownership. So, I mean, again, like, a, you know, just to turn it back to how you see this growing over the next five years, where you where you feel these sort of like obvious growth vectors are, you know, and how we're going to pivot into a space that rewards this sort of educated individual that you're talking about you know pulling it back to the the fringe and to the individual players involved i do think that to be honest i think we're pretty much fucked for like the next five years i don't think that anything's drastically going to change for at least five years i think we're, what's going to happen is we're going to keep seeing these little small disasters like cambridge Analytica. these small i know it's big but like in the context of the world like it's pretty small um, we're going to keep seeing it happening. And then I think maybe within four to five years, we're going to see some ridiculous disaster. We're going to see something that's so crazy that we need to change our view on data. It's going to be something insane, insane, like a huge government taking control of, like say like India, China, Russia, or someone like that is going to take control of a data center from some company or they're going to hack in, they're going to get access and they can use that information to basically influence the world. So like that's like, and then once that happens, we're going to see a massive population-based change on our views and these kind of things. But until that happens, convenience is always going to win over any sort of health-based activity. So even if it's privacy health, unless unless something comes out that's as good as Google or as, as good as Facebook or as easy to use while also still somehow ma- managing to maintain some sort of uh, privacy-based system, nothing's really going to change. The vast bulk of the population are just going to keep using what's easy. They're going to get their iPhone. They're going to get their Android phone. It's going to have Facebook and Twitter and stuff pre pre-installed. Then like, well, how can you really get around that? Like you have to, as, if people have to keep going out of their way to do these kind of things and they're not going to do it. So, and, and I think what a good system might be to happen is that if someone, a phone manufacturer created their own OS and offer the phone dirt cheap, they found some sort of new way of developing a phone that was dirt cheap and just as good as the others, and they have their own OS that's privacy based. Then maybe, like <laughs> may, maybe then, but like that's the only scenario I really see things changing. I really do think things are going to stay the same for four to five years. I'm going to do my absolute best to like try and make as many people change their minds as possible. But I think in the long term, we're going to have to wait till something catastrophic happens in the data scene, and then things will change. It's only when it's like it's like um like 
airplanes don't change their laws until a plane crashes. They don't change the regulations. Like until something disastrous happens, nothing changes. So it's the only situation I see it really. Grim as that is. No, I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know, I come from a lifetime of studying mass extinctions and, you know, other sort of planet scale catastrophes. So a nation level data breach in light of like the end of dinosaurs doesn't actually sound that bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. if that's no, all no it takes. That. Yeah. That's a pretty small price to pay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously there's utility attacks like, you know, cyber warfare and that kind of thing. And again, that, you know, that level of a, a cyber attack on infrastructure seems also to suggest the exact same sort of adaptive response, which is decentralizing the electrical utility grid, you know, or like decentralizing our water collection and water treatment, you know, um, that you can't attack a billion people all at once if the architectural decentralization is like sufficient, you know? So I don't know, I guess maybe I'm a bit more hopeful that, you know, progressive developers such as yourself see this problem clearly enough that the majority of people don't need to get on board before uh, alternatives with sort of more insightful incentive structures are deployed. Hmm. Well, I guess like a good little shoot off would that be if you had like decentralized data storage. Have you ever heard of uh, bulletproof servers? No. So bulletproof servers are just, uh, you know, the Pirate Bay. Yeah. So the Pirate Bay locates their servers on a bulletproof server, which is run by typically Dutch companies. And they basically, they make it so the company does not have access to the server and it has the highest level of encryption. So even if the Dutch police come to this company and go like, hey, give us access to the server, the Pirate Bay is illegally conducting services on the server, then the company go, we actually don't have access to it. Because the companies lock off their own access to the servers. Like physically? So they may, physically, like they can't get in the... Yeah. No, no, they literally, they can't touch them. Or they can, sorry, they can't, they, they can touch them, but they can't um, access it. Like it's only accessible by the company. Well, if you use something like DigitalOcean or Amazon Web Services, Amazon can access that information. And a lot of the information isn't at the highest level of uh, five, 512 SHAT-512 encryption or whatever it is. Um, so that would be a good step. Like as long as the information is encrypted sufficiently, there's no chance of a, of a massive data breach. But that's one of the biggest problems that not every website uses HTTPS. So that means that the web traffic's encrypted. Most, uh, I think some like 60% of sites don't use that. And a lot of servers aren't encrypted. So that's what happens with data breaches. So for instance, like um, Under Armour recently had their servers hacked for MyFitnessPal and they leaked 150 million users information like unencrypted so like it was um that's 150 million emails and lots of people eating like avocado milkshakes and all that stuff <laughs> but like there was um that's a big that's a massive breach and like no one heard about it did you know that no i mean it's on that's two weeks ago it's on par with the uh ashley madison thing but it doesn't sound quite as yeah. bad well actually madison was hilarious but like um <laughs> that was it's it, when these things happen it's just it's just such a damn shame. It's like, because it's so easy to encrypt and protect information, but companies just aren't incentivized to do it because people don't care. So like, I think it, like a very good start for every company is some sort of national data standard, which is what I'm kind of hoping to do going forward is doing, um, it'd be like a privacy auditing. You know, like the way um, public companies have to do 
uh, they have to get an auditor to like something like PwC. They have to get them to sign off on their accounts and say that this company's legit and they've conducted business properly. Everything's cool. I would do the same with a privacy audit. So I'd go in and be like, okay, everything's encrypted, everything's safe. So even if there is a hack or a breach, everyone's information is safe. And then it would just be a little tick of approval, and that would be that. It would be a, it would be a nice little lo- a low level data standard that maybe public companies should have to abide by, just like nonprofits have to abide by um, getting an auditor. So, like, it, uh, that's sort of the realm I'm hoping to go into, and I hope that's the direction people will go into for their companies, too. But I don't know how viable that is. And then, so, I mean, we're coming up on an hour, so let's drill down into some specifics again. I mean, you, you know, you said, basically, a lot of this stuff, you really can't change it without targeting yourself because you are clearly, from the God's eye view, trying to hide something, you know, like you mentioned with Iran and the VPN issue. So you use what, like Proton Mail and Signal? Like, what is your, like, what is uh, your personal so digital hygiene regimen? Mostly, I just I turn off any privacy collection settings when I go onto an app or something like that. That's like a good start. Uh, I use NordVPN, so that's uh, all my traffic is encrypted. See, like with NordVPNs, the good thing is, uh, is that like if we're in the West, kind of Western countries, we're fine like you're generally okay it's when you get into like iran and syria and all those kind of places where using a vpn is dangerous or china you're like you're not allowed to use a vpn in china um so yeah getting nord vpn is a good start it's pretty cheap it's like 99 dollars for three years and it's uh, almost as fast as using your normal internet um then you can also use proton mail or fast mail so they're just encrypted uh, mail services that don't store your emails like google um then you can also use uh webrtc leak preventer that's an extension on chrome which will stop um the browsers being able to live see your location on your traffic and what else can you do you can also use pre-search or duckduckgo so i'm working with both, both those companies so nice little plug but um they're both nice privacy based alternatives for searching and yeah, mostly just common sense. Like, just like if you're if you're living in a Western country, you can like Google or search whatever you want. Realistically, as long as it's not like child porn, like you can you can research virtually any topic and be okay. Um, what I would encourage people to do though is not send like nudes. <laughs> like, just don't, just don't, <laughs> don't send nudes. Like, that's just that's there's my tip. And even if you do it on Snapchat, uh, that can be tracked. Not tracked. Sorry, that can be captured very easily. And Snapchat stores a lot of that stuff on your phone temporarily but anyway um yeah and just be careful like messages you send just keep in mind that this stuff can come back to bite you it always and it's always going to be stored so if you put something online it's there forever so that's it just common sense that's your best that's your best safety well now if everybody sends nudes then it's a mexican standoff right (laughs) like it's like the end of a quentin tarantino film like I've got your dick pics, but you've got my dick pics, so nothing's, no, you know, it's like nobody's embarrassed in a nudist colony, right? I don't, know, I don't know what you, I don't know what you're asking of me right now, but <laughs> not participating. <laughs> I'm not willing to do that. Enjoy the podcast, but I'm not sending a dick pic. Yeah, <laughs> like well, I mean, just to the point of like, you yeah. know, thinking about the kids these days that are not growing up with the proper sort of eldership around digital hygiene and privacy concern, they're going to mature into a generation where everyone has the ability to, you know, extort everyone else. And so it sort of becomes a non-issue, right? At that point. This generation is the first generation that's actually smarter as teenagers and kids than the generation before it. 
So like it's because it's, it's when you live your life almost entirely digitally, it's very hard to learn anything from your parents in terms of like morals or ethics because you're probably going to find that almost entirely online. Uh, so like that's that is a big issue where that, I think that will rectify itself going forward a bit because now when the millennial generation has kids, then we'll actually be able to instruct our children on what to do in the future. Well, we never had that. Like my mother has no clue how to use a computer. How could she possibly have taught me how to correctly do stuff online? Like, I mean, she had no idea. So like I just did whatever I had to do. So like, but that, I think that problem will probably rectify itself in the future because this is the only generation that is... Um, more technologically advanced than the generation before. Like, that's never happened before. That's literally never, ever in human history has the younger generation been smarter than the one before it. It's a very weird situation to be in. So, telescoping that forward, I like I like ending these calls typically by inviting the guests to play a particular thought experiment, which is, this recording is going into an archive that will be discovered by historians that you just made the case, uh, it sounds to me, are going to be way, way, way smarter than we are. But they're going to they're gonna be looking back on this to understand what it was like to be stupid old us. What message of value do you feel that you have for those hyper-literate, digital native, or possibly even digital historians? Like, wh- What would you communicate to them? If you could, George Bush did nine eleven. That's like the only. <laughs> that's the only one I have. That's Jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. <laughs> that's the voice of a that's, generation. Yeah, that's that's our generation's message. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess don't look too negatively back on humanity because I have no doubt that we're going to commit unbelievable mistakes going forward in the next 50 to 100 to, two, to 1,000 years. It's a big learning process and I think we got really excited <laughs> by like how cool things are nowadays that we just didn't, we can't, we, there's no time to think things through. Technology advancing so quickly we can't think things through. They're out and we're all using them before, like Uber came out like three years ago and like now everyone in the US uses it. It actually got outlawed in Ireland but like everyone in the US uses it. Like this stuff's happening so quickly we literally cannot keep up. So don't just like too harshly like it's it's an incredible time to be alive but also a a terrible time to be alive in that kind of sense Mm, awesome so uh obviously i would think you would encourage people to go check out pre-search and uh where else can people you got your your twitter where where can people find you uh so you can find me on twitter.com slash i am dylan kern uh then my youtube channel is just dylan kern or it's subscribing on patreon patreon.com slash i am dylan kern and then i'll be tweeting like my projects and stuff going forward too Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Big thanks to the MindPod Network for syndicating this show. And if you're going to be in the area this coming weekend, June 7th and 8th, I will be performing and speaking at the Santa Fe Institute's Interplanetary Festival. A confluence of art, music, and rigorous planetology co-produced by Meow Wolf. If you go back and listen to episode 75 with SFI's president, David Krakauer, maybe you can catch some of my enthusiasm for this event. Anyway, as promised, here is a recording of my song Transparent, which is the musical equivalent of the conversation you just listened to. This is a live take from my performance at Mycelium Studios in Melbourne, Australia last February. You can find this track and the entire concert available on michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com for free. Enjoy!
separate self falls into ocean like an ice shell into ocean like an ice shell none of it comes with any As our skeletons become transparent We would be scared if we weren't sharing it
Share it, 